Ryan. Hello, Rachel. How you doing? Oh, I'm pretty sore. Why? It's hard to sit down. It's hard to sit down at the moment because、uh, I just watched a piece of media that whipped my ass. It just <laughs> grabbed me and just started whipping my ass. It just said, "Ryan, you're not ready for this." And I'm like, "What am I not ready for?" And before I could even get the final word out, it was just whipping my ass for the next forty-five minutes nonstop. That's that's just. And now I'm sore. My bum's sore. I sit down on the chair. Ooh. I got a lot of whipping happening from just such a kick-ass episode of television. How about you? How are you? My butt's fine. Rachel's butt is fine, as we know. She keeps TKO scripts underneath it, so if anyone tries to whip her, that takes the brunt of it. That's a fact. We know this. It's been established on this podcast before. Rachel, what are we doing here today? <laughs> What are we doing here today?、Uh, well, unfortunately, we aren't here to talk about TKO <sighs> because should we restart the podcast so we can work our way up to TKO again? No.、Mm, okay. Okay. Now that we've dealt with that,、uh, no, we are <laughs> rewatching Babylon Five and doing an episode by episode breakdown. Of the show, so thus we've already done TKO. We've already done TKO. It's been done and covered. We are up to a very special episode, a very different kind of special. Oh, then very. It's on the DVD cover. That's how special it is.、Mm-hmm. Could you imagine if there was a DVD cover with TKO written on the front of it? Like it, it fooled you into thinking it was going to be special. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil you've ru- it. You've ruined your birthday present now, oh, Ryan. Oh, the, the, those infamous and never will happen Babylon Five Blu-rays, <laughs> where they put that on the cover, TKO. But yes, we are covering a special episode today. But if we are covering Babylon Five,、mm-hmm. why are we called Yum Yum? Some people may be asking. Yeah, and why did you choose Yum Yum, Rachel? I I didn't I didn't. This was your brainchild. Thank you very much. Credit where credit's due, baby. I'm I, I'm overdue for credit. Thank you. <laughs> I I I I got partial credit part for for this. Now I'm getting the full credit from、mm. the teacher in the room, Rachel. You know, can we give Rachel an applause? Thank you, Rachel, for giving me full credit for naming the podcast "Yum Yum," even though you signed off on it and said it was a rad idea. And why is it a rad idea? Oh, I idea? knew that I couldn't talk you out of it. Sorry, because、okay. you are in love with this line from the moment it was said, and it was said in Star Trek Discovery by an individual. Who doesn't have enough to say that they're a character, <laughs>、uh, Commander Nandi? They're the real、um, Walker Smith of Star Trek. She's、Discovery. offered the opportunity to go murder, specifically the antagonist of the episode. Can't even say of the whole series, <laughs>、um, or season for that matter. No,、uh, and no. she says. Yum yum! It was bizarre. We it was weird. Have not been the same since. Mm. Mm. And we thought that it would be wonderful to name our podcast after that. 
uh, especially because we started off doing Star Trek Discovery. And we're still doing Star Trek Discovery. We're in season four as we do Babylon 5 as well. And since we like to rewatch and revisit episodes of television while we talk about them, spoilers are abound. If you have not seen Babylon 5 before, we highly recommend you do, especially for an episode like the one we're going to be covering today, which had... This is not a point to just jump in. This episode was so watershed that I struggle to give anyone YYE, which is Yum Yum Energy. Who would have said Yum Yum? Londo, perhaps? He's the only Mm. guy coming in with that energy. The Nan. The Nan. That stops Londo. Yeah, you know what? Not even the Nan. Not even Londo. Kim Strauss, the actor playing that Nan, gets my seal of approval for YYE in this one. What do you think about that? I approve. It, it's it's approved, it's co-signed, and we are talking about Severed Dreams, which isn't written on the DVD cover. That's actually Point of No Return. They should have this one there too, because this is just one of the three parts of this amazing journey we've been taking on Season 3, where our heroes have to struggle and fight against Earth. But let's hear what the DVD has to say. As Earth Force destroyers hurtle toward the jump gates providing the entrance to the station's sector, the options are clear for Sheridan and his crew. Surrender or fight. They choose to fight. <laughs> they, 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 uh, they choose to fight, guys. That's what, do- that's what, that's what they chose. Hit the phone his daddy to make sure of that decision. Now I know you probably got a million things to do. So I'm going to let you go and do them. And I guess uh, I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Let's get into our history and relationship with Severed Dreams. Mine is not all that complicated, honestly. It was satisfying. It was satisfying. This is something that the show has been building up towards. I, I was... Not as shocked and surprised as I was with the previous ones because this had been, again, this is something that this has been going towards. We are past the point of of no no return. return. And so I was satisfied. I thought it was thrilling. I thought it was exciting. And I was looking forward to the next episode because... There have been a string of really great episodes. So this was one in which it was monumental, of course. Everything is changing. Uh, But when I also first viewed this, I must admit that the Earth conflict was not the thing I was most drawn to. So I didn't appreciate this one as much as I do now when looking at it today. And when I looked at it today, I was... I I was just in love with this. This is definitely one of the best episodes we've watched in the season, at least. I wouldn't say the series as far. I still prefer the Long Twilight Struggle over this. But, yeah, this is just one that it's considered great by the fans and even by the creator, and it's because it is. And there's nothing more I can say about it in relation to history and my history with it. What about you? Do you remember what it's been like watching Severed Dreams? It's always been amazing. 
and we'll get more into this, but it's amazing in different ways every time I watch it because there's so much here and it doesn't feel burdened by the weight that it's carrying. And I love it for that reason in particular because it gives us so much. The things that it gives us are earned. We have earned this. That was the general... Even Londo's racism... (laughs) Is well, yes, that has been woven into the show uh, many a times, and we needed to see Londo's reaction to the Nand being security. And even if it was a humorous once one-off scene, we needed that. We needed that pretty quickly after it being established. But this episode was an abundance of riches because of the ongoing continuity of the series. This would work i i i don't know if this this wouldn't work if you hadn't seen the show before like you could watch it and see it as a, like this awesome piece of action sci-fi but the emotional resonance of it would fall a little more flatly because this is for the people who are who are watching the show and constantly when i was watching this i was just stroking my chin and nodding my head going this moment here, or this scene here, or this character motivation here makes sense because it has been in the series already. This is all lining up. This doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere or out of the blue or the writer just wanted to get give us a gotcha type deal. This didn't feel smug to me. This didn't feel any of those things. This was very much a master of their craft delivering to the audience what they've been hungry for since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. They've smelt this coming from a long way away. Mm, Indeed, indeed. What were some of the things for you in this manner where we're talking about this working because it is being earned? Let's start with Corwin. Because that's just... A fairly recent thing. Like, it easily could have been abandoned, but it's not. It's not. They they take a little moment. We see Corwin in CNC because, as you pointed out, that's where he lives. That's where his bed is. That's where he sleeps. He lives there. So you admit one of, that one we of record that... at school. So you admit that. No. Because we live at Rachel's school because she's a teacher. No. No. No, no, Rachel doesn't want to admit that in case the kids are listening and they might want to crash our, our place of rest. But you were saying, yeah, Corwin, it's paying off, even though that's a recent setup. It does make Exogenesis feel like it mattered in some way. <laughs> Be- because, yeah, it was, it was really sweet that yeah. we had a, even a moment to pause to turn to Corwin and ask for his viewpoint on what's happening around him. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that there is that dude that walks out, like he takes his earpiece out and he walks. Mm-hmm. And that that matters because we have really been in the midst of it all with the crew on Babylon 5 and understanding the chain of command and hierarchy and how the military works and bureaucracy works and loyalty and allegiances and the Earth Alliance and Nightwatch and 
all of that. So when you even have a little moment like a guy saying, you know what, no, I don't want to do trees and I'm just going to leave and they don't make a big deal out of it. No, they just he really it meant there. that it's just like, if you want to leave before you break any orders, go now. Mm. One of the moments that definitely was making this episode succeed because it has been pitched throughout the entire series thus far is obviously the conflict that is going to break them away from Earth when it comes to Clark taking those extra steps to be villainous. They even point out that he spent the entire year, and we have actually seen that entire year, putting his men in place so that he could have this uh, totalitarian empire of his own that we are seeing take form in a way that is now turning to Babylon 5. And that was was as a viewer satisfying again satisfying to hear them say this because we were actually there for that journey and it was a slow journey across the second season in which we were seeing the Clark stuff being formed and him putting his pieces in place and now we're seeing him play those pieces to the point of such brutal terrible acts that are going to force our characters to want to separate away from Earth and fight against them but it really is important to note down that this show has a continuity. And since it has that continuity, this feels very important because they are breaking away from this format of the show that we've set up. And since they are doing that, you know that they have a direction they need to go and want to go in as creators of a show because there has been a clear vision of what this series has been because of that ongoing continuity, those ongoing character things. Heck, Sheridan's dad being somebody he phones in this matters because his father has been uh, has been brought up many times before, even just recently in messages from Earth. So when he does phone up his dad... We believe it, we buy it, because it has been told to us before that this is someone important to him. So when he makes this call, it isn't just the writer throwing some random piece of manipulation at us that comes out of nowhere. It just feels natural. Um, There was a kind of neat trivia point that I would like to read out that is about how this is a a shifting point in the series, which is that this episode was purposefully scheduled as the midpoint of the series intended for a five-year run as a payoff for the preceding story action in which the station's command period was growing suspicion and then covert action against the villains of the series, and that's now ended, Mm. and now they have to fight out in the open at last. We were talking about that in the very first episode of the third season here, when they got the White Star, and that they're no longer going to wait for things to come to Babylon 5. They're actually going to go out there and take the fight to them, to the enemy. And now the enemy includes Earth. But it's not even just about going out there and physically going out there and taking the fight. It is about the sentiment of we are no longer going to stand by and play by the bureaucratic rules. We're no longer just observing. We're no longer just wringing our hands and trying to do things by the books, even though the books are uh, corrupted and wrong. Now we are going to see our characters 
form their own morality in a way, their own ethics and justice and have to stick by that and see how that's challenged throughout. The well-trodden path is behind them and it's not just uh, human characters that are experiencing that but all of our alien characters as well, Mm. like particularly Dylan, obviously, but even Londo. Mm. Like is a little bit off kilter after the last couple of episodes, and Jakar has been adjusted. Yeah, he has a lot of really lovely small moments in this episode uh, when he arrives and helps them with the injured Minbari. Yeah, the injured ranger. Yeah, and when he's saying goodbye to Delenn, and she's just like. You're not the same person that I met four years ago, and he really, and he really isn't. And yeah, and it's like, and Jakar has been keep he's kept his word with everything else, which is not the Jakar that we met. We met a duplicitous Jakar, even just those few episodes ago in Dust to Dust. Mm. He was shifty. We're we're far beyond the days of beep beep. Jakar, thank you for your help. I think you are no longer quite the same person I met when I came here four years ago. When I was viewing Babylon 5 for the first time, or even many, many times, there are so many things happening in the series that you are naturally going to have a point of interest that is unique to you. So you may have a viewer that is far more aligned with seeing all of the Londo stuff or all of the Earth First stuff and or all of the Minbari politics. And for myself, when I was view when I viewed this a lot, I was always drawn to the galactic war of the shadows and the Vorlon and the big aliens and so good in this the spaceship battles in this episode are fucking great. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. And this is one where it's just Earth versus Earth. We don't yeah. get the aliens. But, my- but there's so much distinction between the ships. Mm. And it's just that top, bo- top to bottom approach of everything matters. Mm. And that is part of what enables you to have so many different entry points and points of interest that we could go on for days Mm. because there's all of these big things and all of these small things. But I would love to hear some more specifics of what got you in this time. Yeah. In the past, I have more often than not been drawn to the shadow conflict because it's fun. It's big and it's about ancient aliens and you got Mr. Morden and you got Londo drawn in and I'm so used to in my science fiction these big alien battle fights being not in it as much as I would like let's just say and I'm far more accustomed to shitty humans fighting shitty humans and so the human conflict in the series has never been as big for me uh, it has changed over the last several watches. I've been more focusing on it, and throughout this podcast experience, we've been looking at it too, and it has made me 
drawn to it more and more in which on this watch it is thing that I'm most interested in rather than the Shadow and uh, Londo stuff, even though I still love all of that, I still very much do, I am really liking what we're doing with the human politics. And so an episode like Severed Dreams improves upon being seen again for me as somebody who has had an attachment to other aspects of the show over the type that this is a part of. So on this watch and us having to talk about the show, break it down meticulously, this is far more enjoyable to see today because the Earth stuff has been just brewing and we've been picking at it as we've gone through basically every episode of the show we we mention some aspect of it so to have the culmination of a lot of the stuff we've talked about have it here in this episode it, it's very special how about you have you been like that with babylon 5 how have you been with with the series yeah. in terms of your point of interests i often latch on to different characters each time we rewatch this time and also, th- I think each rewatch has just made me realize how much Jakar is my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Because I loved every little moment that he got in this episode, either when he was there or when he was being referred to. Mm. I love the growth that he's gone through and how paced and earned it all is, even though he's had this real pivot in what is just the last few episodes. Mm. That's been the real big shift with Jakar. So I was loving that in this one. Um, And, of course, being the, you know, Shipper than I am. The romance of John and uh, Delenn. Yep. Or Marcus and Ivanova. <laughs> He's not here today, though. No, Marcus. no. You did get your feed today of uh, of uh, Delenn and Sheridan. He yes. kissed her hand, and even Garibaldi was like, ah, oh, brother. Like, they're like, oh, oh we're walking in on something. Uh, he was already there, and then he had to like sidestep so that yeah. he, so Sheridan could go talk to Delenn and. The look on Jerry Doyle's yeah, face. Yeah, but when they, like, they walk up with a Vonnegut mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. go in and be clapped at. Yeah, it's basically that equivalent of when your high school friend has now got a boyfriend and they're kissing them and you're just at your hangout and you're like, ah, oh, jeez, guys, I'm here. Hello, it's me, your friend. I-, I saw that, but let's not talk about that. Delenn is in the episode, by the way. She's here. She was off for a little while. She's back again. She's got some dealings to have, and we. She goes. She goes hard in this episode. She goes off at the Great Council, and it is fucking amazing. There's so many lines in that speech that she gives that I'm like, this is just phenomenal. Mm. Well, to get to there, we have an injured ranger on Babylon 5 that she has to go meet, and there's a lot of secrecy. And protect. And protect, and Franklin's been brought along to help him, and 
oh, we can't take him Med here because not safe. this man has ruffled a lot of feathers. He has been monitoring and keeping an eye on the League of Non-Aligned World planets and societies, and he's found out something so deadly that everyone wants to kill him. And I like the episode, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I hate mm-hmm. this guy's performance. I, I, I don't I never like this Minbari guy's performance. The Ranger, he overcooks it. The episode is running on high octane. There's a lot of this is epic feel, and he just comes in with too much for my liking. His line deliveries are just too uh, too too much. Too much for me. So when he's delivering this important exposition about how the shadows are hustling their way in with these League of Non-Aligned World planets and making them fight each other and making them think that the shadows are their powerful allies, I, I don't feel the weight of it because of the actor delivering the information. It's not the script. It is just that performance just is too much for, for me to really care that's the sad thing is this is interesting information like we can talk about what it means and the repercussions that it will have throughout the rest of this season and the next one but just this guy he's just saying it so so over the top so oh i'm an actor by the way and this I, is my moment if this I'd, is my moment. I've been I've been in hours in the makeup chair. I'm gonna make it fucking count. And yeah, you made it count, bro. You made it count way too much. They listen to the shadows out of fear, afraid that if they did not ally themselves with a greater force, they would be conquered by the Centauri. But an alliance of defense has now grown into the dream of conquest. The information, though, it does tell us that the League of Non-Aligned World people are getting super cocky and confident that they're more powerful than they are, which is a dangerous thing, especially when you see how it's affecting Earth in a similar manner, where they think they're big dogs, or the Centauri as well, where they think they're big dogs. And that's just a shadow influence uh, wrapping itself around. and uh, Yeah, and just the fact that everybody thinks that they're the top dog because they have this secret ally and mm-hmm. the secret ally is supporting everybody in this conflict. Uh, and what do the Grey Council have to say about this, Rachel? The, you know, the honourable, noble, blessed Grey Council. Surely they, 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 they're going to help, right? They've known about the shadows. There's a prophecy. No, 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 no. What? It's not our problem. What do you mean? Not our people, not our problem. You're telling me the affairs of others hey. are no concern? But but the prophecy. Oh, no, 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 no. I thought we were supposed we, to be... We, we, we got to go over here. we got to go over here. No, well, no, no, look, no. I understood when I we sacrificed... No, 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 I did that. Look, I understood no, when... No, 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 you but... don't get to talk. You don't get to talk. Oh, okay. I don't have to listen. But Rachel, I've got a. But Rachel, I've got the staff now. I'm holding it over my head. It's it's really key, isn't it? The the Minbari are talking in a very Volon like fashion when it comes to this. We don't. We have no interest in the affairs of others. It was very much how Kosh has spoken in the show. Yeah. 
let them pass, they are a dying people, or uh, even earlier, I think it was in the war prayer, where he even states that he has no interest in the affairs of others, and he's like, you're a liar, you're a big fat liar, oh, yeah, with Paul have... Giamatti, starring Paul Giamatti, Frankie Muniz. We have Munoz. no interest in the affairs of other races, and it's just like, bitch, that's all you do! And now the Minbari are taking this stance because they don't actually want to get involved. They're so prideful and arrogant, and you said it. Mira Falan is absolutely excellent in this episode. She she goes she 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 knows how to chew through these lines of dialogue because they know how to write these lines for her as well. She, they being JMS. They being JMS. Yeah, yeah. The one man. Sorry, how could I forget? Uh, he knows how to write these lines of dialogue for this actress at this point. Uh, she is very good at fury. Uh, without it being embarrassing, because some actors, when they do fury or anger or, or indignation, can too much go... nostril work yeah. is a problem for a lot of actors. Or with yelling. Fury. Or yelling. Mm. Uh, but she is an experienced actress, and she uses these skills, and the direction is beautifully paired with it. Where. It's this justifiable rage. She's not having to yell or scream, but she's not being quiet either. Commanding mm. is a really good word to describe her performance in this. And she has that speech in in the hallway trying to get into the Great Council. And Mirafalan embodies not just the fury and the rage and the indignation, but the amount of power that she has as a as a person, the character, even though Delenn has been stripped of all of these things, she comes up to this guy and she's not just, oh, I'm Delenn of the Grey, it's I have Ducat here and, and the prophecy here and Valen's name this, and even you as an audience member are just like, dude, let her in. Don't don't piss off Delenn. She may come across as a little lady, but you, you do not want to piss gonna... her off. You aren't gonna win this. You aren't gonna win this. Just, just step. Yeah, it's it, yes, it's Austin Powers three, basically, where it's Michael Caine being like, "Come on, son, you don't even have a name badge. Just lie on the ground. Go on, do it." That's Delenn with this one guy. We don't even know who this guy is. I, I'm pretty sure we may have met him before, but he might as well have just laid on the ground and let her walk over him as she went into the Great Council. So you like the Grey Council monologue scene, that's what I'll call it, because yep. it's just her monologuing the whole time. Yeah, um, and they set up that it's going to be a monologue with that. Ah, uh, it's so good when she's just like, oh, they don't have to talk to me, they just have to listen. Mm-hmm. Just the way that that's phrased and said in this episode, it sets the exact tone for mm. what's coming. If there's one complaint that I have with Severed Dreams as an episode, and it's a nitpick, it's on me, I have always found it bizarre and strange to remember that in the Grey Council, Naroon is there, and he has nothing to say. I just... That is something I Don't find... Don't fucking buy it for a second. My suspension of disbelief is, is severed there. Oh, severed, like dreams... And I just always think to myself, oh, Naroon's in this room, right? He is a member of this he council. he talks about it like he, he wasn't there? Well, I can't remember how he fully talks about it in later episodes, but 
I just, if he is here, which I do believe he's supposed to be, he has nothing to say. That's not his character. That's not his character before this episode. That's not his character after this episode. He will always take the time to berate Delenn and her choices, especially if she's doing them right in front of him. And oh, then another aspect that he I find... He will not stay out of her shit. And another aspect I think is... Uh, I guess it pays off later in season four, but he took her spot on the council, and I feel like he didn't really do much sinister crap while taking her spot in the council? No! Her disbanding the council is when we get far more warrior shenanigans yeah. happening in the caste systems, but we were told, like, he, he's taken my spot in the council, no, he's overthrown the balance, and we, I guess you could argue the apathy that the council has. of them still stay? Well, we don't know which ones stayed. No, we don't. Maybe there's still a good warrior. But at least, yeah, at least Maybe one it was Naroon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he left because he's a piece of shit who's like, you know what, I, you know, this is disbanded. I'm, I'm just going to leave. I, I don't know. It's just Naroon exists here, and I think the episode doesn't want me to remember that he no, exists no, here. No, I, I don't think you are, because otherwise, like, otherwise you are meant to be like, which warrior? I wonder. Or, or he would have something to say here. Which warrior stayed, or why did Naroon not speak? Mm-hmm. And it's like, is she meant to be addressing him when she says, like, even you? Uh, oh, I don't... Or is I'm that meant to be sure. one of the other council members? Or religious one, maybe? Who mm-hmm. knows? Uh, but she proceeds to break apart the Grey Council, which is great in terms of tying into what will be happening with uh, human characters where they have to break away from Earth. This is ending and closing the book on certain things. So the Grey Council has been a thing we are very firmly aware of. We've understood what they are, how they function, and now they are being torn apart and put in the bin by Delenn. She breaks the staff. It's apparently a part of this prophecy that this would happen as well. That the Great Council would yeah. be disbanded. Because I think that ties into the a thousand years of Minbari peace. Mm-hmm. And we know who Valen is. It's Sinclair. So Sinclair knows about the Council being broken because he was, you know, in it's the timeline at the moment. It's his buddy that does it. Yeah, he's one of his uh, descendants that does it. So he's around. What do you think about Delenn? Wait, wait. I have a question about that. Then yeah, would you say that he just timeline shenanigans? Question. Yes. Is he a friend or an ancestor first? Then technically, well, I guess he's technically an ancestor. Yeah, because that predates it. Mm-hmm. But he knows her as a friend first. Well, yeah, because she's 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 lying to him. For the first season, she knows more about what's going on than he does. So yeah, there you go. But how much does she know about him actually becoming Valen? I think she knows a good amount. We'll have to get there. Uh, she breaks the Great Council thoughts. She just storms in there and says, "Yeah, it's over." My th- thoughts are, "Fuck yeah!" Just, just. Do you have anything to add to that? Well, 
we could go into this layered nuance thing and she broke the staff, but damn, my ass hurts so much because this scene whips. <laughs> this scene whips. She's excellent. The performance is great. She puts the thing over her head and breaks it and some electricity comes out. And you know it's electrical because it's blue and white. So, you know, ooh, it's awesome. I'm so glad that they're breaking it apart because it sucks. The Great Council sucks. But you it's something that I didn't expect either back in the day because you knew that there's a tensions rising with Babylon 5 and the Earth Alliance and that will have to come to a head. And yes, there's been tensions between her and the Grey Council as well. But, but you didn't think it was going to happen now. And in the way it does. And I'm so glad that there are consequences to her actions as well because she does just storm in there she breaks it apart and doesn't replace it with anything so it does leave a vacuum of power and we'll see how that is delved into in one of the worst episodes Grey 17 is missing well that is actually the one of the great plot lines that's actually a great plot line in a rather bad episode or one that's perceived to be one of the worst episodes it's it's no exogenesis people come on Let's not get crazy now. Uh, Similar pattern to TKO, though. Oh, yes. And she storms out of there. She takes some council members with her and whatever forces they have. And we'll have it tie in to the ending of uh, the other plotline happening. She comes in and helps save the day. And she gives us this amazing badass speech, possibly her best speech in the entire show, mm. easily. Only one human captain has ever survived battle with the Minbari fleet. He is behind me. You are in front of me. If you value your lives, be somewhere else. And these tie together so well because of the similarities, but they approach them in as characters in their own ways, where Delenn doesn't need the reassurance of others. She doesn't need to uh, tenderly make sure that everyone's okay with her doing this. She just does it. Well, Sheridan, he does need to do that because he's in a very vicarious position where if he makes the wrong kind of move, the wrong kind of statement, he could get kicked out of there and it doesn't go his way. Delenn doesn't have that concern or worry. She just knows her place. She knows her place. Even though she's no longer in the council. But she's been stripped of those things. And yes. she still knows her power and her worth. Mm. And that doesn't come from being a member of the Grey Council. And so she gets all of these forces to help protect Babylon 5 because she is a believer of the prophecy. She believes and actually acts on her beliefs. Where We have to fight. We have to make this fight. Sheridan says it in one of his scenes where he made a promise to Delenn that when the darkness comes, we have to draw the line and know where we're going to fight. And she has to do the same. And, and that's her doing it here where she's bringing in the reinforcements and she comes in and she just looks those earthers in the eyes and just says, I'm going to fuck you up right now if you come over here. So you better leave. And... Oh, Badass. Again, my ass hurts from how much this whips. The music, the the, the camera shots, uh, the, the, her line delivery of it, Sheridan's reactions before she comes in, during her speech, and after it. 
It is magnificently put together, and it just is one of those things where you are satisfied on another level because it's been a little while since we've had badass Delenn. I think that this is a good point to commend the direction of this episode because it does something like it does a lot of things right but something that I didn't really stop to think about until we were getting ready to record this episode is how well the CG battles fit in with the direction of the like the actual live action stuff so it fits seamlessly because the direction feels cohesive mm. it doesn't feel like and now we have a space battle it's like and now we go to the space battle mm-hmm. and it's part of this world and it's, it's just so good and we care about the results of the battle so, and we know that it will be victory with a cost mm. because that's always what Babylon 5 shows us and it's done with the script and with the direction. Like I was just left gasping when it has that moment of like Sheridan's like, we've won, everybody come back to base and then it cuts to all of the casualties Mm -hmm. still picking themselves up off the floor, if they can. Mm. We see a lot of bodies. We see a lot of dead people. moving. Mm, mm, Yeah, with uh, Garibaldi and the Narn having to deal with people boarding uh, the station. Yeah, that's a rather haunting moment that even says, at the end, to further underline your point, the end where everybody cheers and the camera still pans over to the Nightwatch poster and the sinister music plays that says, in itself, this isn't over. Just, this is a victory, but it isn't the final one. It's this a is, battle, not the war. This this is a win for now. This is the episode known for being the one where they break away from Earth. And it is excellent when you get to there, but... What really, really gets you there is the build-up to it within this episode itself, as well as the other ones that we've already watched. In this, we still have Sheridan and co. knowing that they have to do the thing that they will do, but not wanting to. Yes, we have... Even after he's done it, Sheridan's like, I'm proud of what we did, but not why we had to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is through everything. Everything shows that. So when he finally says it, Hmm. it's really satisfying because it means that his mind hasn't changed on that fact. He still wishes he didn't have to. In this you see Sheridan go through the gambit of emotions as uh, as an officer. You see how much it gnaws at him. And to achieve that, the script has to, within itself, build up to the breaking point. So we have the major 
Ed, Ryan come in, and that's bringing a lot of stress with itself, because Sheridan has to decide what to do with that, and he has to make that call, and now that they're coming here, this is it. We can no longer hide in the shadows and have our private little meetings and code seven R's anymore. We have to stand on CNC and tell the people working there what we are going to do and how we are not going to follow the orders from the president. And that gets you there. That's just one of the first things that gets you there in the headspace. But you have to show us the capabilities of the antagonists so that when Sheridan is pushed, we buy it even more. So in this, we have Clark, even though he's not physically present here, his actions and what he orders is the stuff that is very haunting and very motivating as well to Sheridan and the crew of Babylon 5 to know that they're doing the right thing. Because Sheridan, even he can't even wear the uniform after this. He just it, it isn't right anymore. This isn't what he's signed on for. He can't put that on again it's until this is done. It's not just that the station will not be a part of the Earth Alliance until Clark is deposed. It's he will not be a part of Earth mm. or Earth Force until this is over. And what are some of the things that Clark is doing in this that tip him and many over? The bombings of civilian targets off-world, particularly of Mars, because we hear about the Mars ones first. And there's, I don't know, it's supposedly like a small thing that I want to note about that um, because it was also prompted by what you were saying about how we don't see Clark. We don't see the face of those bombers either. Yeah. Unlike every other time we've seen people in a space fury, it's like the, a blackout visor. Mm. And it's so powerful to have a, a faceless, determined enemy. An, an amoral enemy. Yes. And to have them wielding this power against our characters that we know and love. I really liked that how ISN was implemented through this episode, which will be very poignant in a moment, but because we'll talk about ISN uh, and what happens to them, but they set up the Mars thing as well, where Mars is refusing to enact martial law, and we're so used to ISN just being there all the time, giving us exposition, but in a way where it just feels natural to the world. And you have, there's the news anchor lady, she's always there, and there she's talking, and she just says offhandedly that, oh, well, Earth is figuring out what actions they'll take against this, but, you know, all of them are on the table. And you shudder when you look at that again, because you're like, oh, yeah, all of them, literally all of them are up for grabs, including murdering people, including bombing civilians and 
Mars has always been this point of contention. It's a point of contention because of there's the free Mars people who are always wanting to get the Earthers off. But yeah, there's a lot of bigotry within Earth itself, within human culture, because they do have a hatred of those Marsies. And we know that the, the, the free Mars people have a hatred of Earthers. So the bigotry isn't just Earth first in terms of aliens versus humans, but it's humans versing humans as yeah. well. Hence, we have Babylon 5 and uh, all of these other colonies as well breaking away and going away from Earth because the hatred that Clark is, uh, that Clark is instituting isn't just against aliens. It's no. against our own. Yeah, it's the other, which mm-hmm. can be anything that is convenient. And then we get ISN. <laughs> if there's ever a scene in this show that makes me feel very uneasy, it's this one. Every time I see what happens to ISN, I get choked up a bit. I get this tingle in the back of my head of anxiety because this you, you imagine this happening in, in our real world, in our landscape. This is something that isn't necessarily off the table of things that have happened. I mean, there have obviously been in certain historical times and certain countries where the news has been taken out. But you, you put yourself in it. And ISN is walking this fine line they even mentioned in the episode let's just talk about ISN in terms before they even get taken out of how the script made sure to remind us that they existed before taking them away did you notice that and what were some moments of that for you they keep on mentioning it and it's not just in this episode but the last couple they mention like We've got to keep ISN open. We've got to keep that on. It's our only link to home. They give us information that other people won't, that like we'll hear things faster kind of through ISN than through the proper channels mm. is a idea that has come through a lot. Uh, heck, Warren Keffer even. And I'm not joking. Warren Keffer got the shadow information out because he sent it to ISN. Yeah. And so the importance of that has been layered up continuously. And they just, they drop it in where it makes sense. And it's not overdoing it because it's just like, well, yeah, of course they'll keep ISN on the air. Mm-hmm. ISN <laughs> just reports. It's not propaganda. No, not full propaganda. Not yet. We talked about in Now for a Word how there is a definite subtle form of propaganda, but they are still coming across as the news. And in this one, I yeah, I was noticing a lot of how they were mentioning ISN. So we had a lot of them on the TV and exposition from ISN, but everybody watching in the Zocalo. Everyone watching in the Zocalo or Zach having a look at it or even uh, uh, not even just that the people looking at it, but Sheridan asking about how come ISN isn't reporting on these things, and Ed Ryan telling them why they can't do that, and you are just so used to the news being a thing that is there, just 
most episodes, not every, but a lot of them just the news is on in the background. So it is just something that we've become so accustomed to in this series. It's something that is important. In a sci-fi show that is about ancient aliens fighting a grand war and humans versus humans and prophecies and time travel and what is it to be a leader or it is still fi- it still finds a time to say the news is a key component of our story as well the news has been something that has been very, very much prevalent in this series that's dealing with all of these other big things. So when they have to take it away, you, the audience, actually care because this has been a part of the show that's been there. It's so when they remove it, you actually notice. Mm-hmm. And it actually is emotionally effective rather than a cheap shot. Because if Babylon 5... Again, talking about earning it, earning it, earning it. If Babylon 5 had never really had the news be a thing in it, and they just did this anyway, just for this episode, it could be still pretty good, but it wouldn't be as good. Would you agree? Yeah, it wouldn't mean as much as it does here. Do you remember your reaction to uh, the ISN being taken out? I remember thinking, well, I'm surprised that they lasted this long, to Mm. be honest. Because, you know, like, news anchors and journalists are high up on target lists when it comes to totalitarian or... Fascist. Fascist governments. Mm. So I'm like, this feels inevitable. Mm. And I love that they went down fighting. Mm. With that, the anchor coming in and being like, okay, gloves are off. This is our last chance to do this. This is what's happening now. There are lots of things that you don't know. We don't have time to tell you. They're storming us right now. We tried to get the camera down there. I like how he makes sure to point that out. Like, I can hear guns firing and you can hear it too. Up on the 14th floor. Uh, that scene. A thing that really makes it work. Is well, two things. Two things that r- also really make this work is it happens when who we know later on to be Jane, the news anchor, ISN Jane, they call her in the fandom, I do believe, when she's there because she's been here since episode 11 of Babylon 5. And she's that one person we know from ISN really well. Like, we don't even really know her that well, but she's that face. Like in our real life, you go, oh, look, it's that news person. I know who they are because I see their face regularly. And they say things. And so you have a secondhand familiarity with them. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the lady. So when this happens and it's her on there as well, it it, it works because, oh, no, no, they're going to take her away. She's been there for so long. And the other thing that really works about this is the direction we cut into the studio. We're not seeing this on the TV. We're not seeing them watching it on the TV. This is the first real time outside of... No, no. Even with And Now For A Word. And Now For A Word, when we're watching Cynthia Talkman, we're watching it through the guise of this is a television program that we are watching Mm -hmm. and our home. But when they cut to inside the studio in this, it is we are 
physically in the studio looking at what's going on. Yep. We are no longer having a degree of separation like the characters are where they're viewing this horror on their TV screen. We are in there with those anchors as they are panicking, as Jane is begging him not to do this, and he has to do this because there's no other chance for it. They've been playing ball with it for so long, and now it's no longer going to be. It's an inevitable thing, as you said. That was always something that I've taken for granted because there are those scenes in media where it just hits you and you don't really analyze or think about why it does. You just know it does. And that there, when you have that cut and we're in there with them, that is the move that makes it really uh, tug at my emotional heartstrings there because it's just we haven't done that before in the show. No. We've never just cut inside of ISN like that. Yeah, it makes it even more distinctive mm. and pivotal because we haven't. They're no longer something afar. There's something right here. And once we're right here with them, that's when they get taken away. Yeah. Clark doesn't want this information released, but we have to go with this now because I don't know how much longer we can stay on the air. Armed troops have begun moving in on the ISN broadcast center here in Geneva. We just saw them coming around the corner. We're trying to get a camera down there to document what's going on. I, I can hear gunfire now up here on the 14th floor. Listen to me. There's information you don't have, but going on for the last year, we haven't been allowed to tell you. Everybody loves Severed Dreams, as do I, because we get some sci-fi action. They... Spent all the CG budget on this. We have shooty shooty explosion. We're, we're, we're paying off the conflict by actually having a fight. We are no longer in the era where we can just say, hey, we, we see it. Sheridan tries to plead with them by telling them the rules. Don't you know it's against the constitution to do this? Here's the law, and don't you see that these orders are wrong, Captain? Don't you understand? You can't reason oh, your way out of this. Peef. The last appeal for surrender mm. before the ship explodes at the end. Mm -hmm. He's so desperate. You can't just weasel your way out of this this time, Sheridan. This is, you have to fight. And... I'm a fan of that because we have seen them just hold back on that. You've known for so long that they're going to have to fight each other at some point. Or if not, how is the show going to manage their way out of that? Something's got to give. And it does here. It gives and we get Star Furies versus Star Furies, Earthships versus Earthships, Babylon 5, this city in space, is now a target to be shot at, and it's using its defense grid that, uh, thankfully, was given to us last season by Franklin's dad, so good it could take down a warship, and we see them take down a warship or two in this. What do you think about this stuff. Are you uh, as enamored with this? How do you feel about all of this? About Earth fighting each other and how this is when we finally get to see that tension released? Oh, it's so good. It's so satisfying. And it is 
done in a way where you understand everything that's happening. It's not a CGI mess. Like, we're um, watching other sci-fi shows and they refer to, like, space battles as being in the soup. Mm. And a lot of the time I'm like, yeah, it is the soup because it's a blurry CGI fucking mess and I can't tell Who's where and what's what and who, why are they fighting this? But this, even though it's the same kind of ships fighting the same kind of ships, I know I can follow Mm. because it is designed and produced and executed in a way that makes it all clear. And you understand the conflict you understand it in terms of the plot, but you also understand it from the human perspective in terms of the psychological toll that this is going to take as well as the emotional toll because they're having to shoot at their own people. They mention that a lot in this, that this isn't the type of war we've fought before. We know yes. everybody we kill. Yeah, with Ryan at the start. Mm-hmm. And I loved, I loved the moment kind of circling back to points of interest. I love that Ivanova goes out. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, she has to motivate because they're having to do something that they've never been trained to do, fight their own ships, fight their own people, and you need one of us out there to show that we aren't afraid to do it ourselves, that we have to do it ourselves as well. And there's that moment, too, of when the Churchill goes down and Ivanova is looking at that happening and she gets distracted and then she has to spiral out and eject. But when the Churchill goes down and we get the the classic World War II era type movie thing where you have them radioing each other or in this case communicating each other with the TV screen saying like, it's too late for me, I have to go down, and I'm going to take them down with me, and they just ram into that other ship. And with the Earth fighters, with the Earth uh, cruisers and and, and uh, big boys, since they are these big, clunky, metal, spinny things, just seeing it ram into the other one in this slow motion... Like, they're not even in slow motion, just they are naturally not going that fast. Yeah. <laughs> just makes it all the more... You just there's there's that mixture of sadness, of course, because this is sad, but also you just drooling and salivating, going yes, yes, get him, get him, fucking kill these guys, yes. And it's a method we haven't seen used a lot in the in the series when it comes to these space battles. Another thing that I think is also beneficial to the fighting here, unlike with the shadow stuff, this is a fair fight. These are two forces who are fairly matched against each other so that there is a real cat and mouse sense to it. This isn't fighting the raiders. This isn't shadows blowing up Narn ships as they get out of the jump gates. This isn't the Centauri making their way into the Narn homeworld because they've made it so easy for themselves. These are two forces who are of the same having to go at each other and there's a good chance that either could win. And That is a part of the stakes at play here. And this is this episode that holds up on the watches because 
there are some episodes of these sci-fi shows where you have the big space battles where they've spent a lot of the budget and they're warring about and they're just blasting their lasers. Star Trek Discovery is the obvious example where Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2, the infamous Yum Yum episode, where that episode is 90% of it is shooty shooty laser battles. And a part of the reason that doesn't hold up even on a first watch is it lacks those tender human moments. Severed Dreams... I like it more on the rewatches, not because of the awesome space battles that I've been hungering for for ages, but because of these little moments that connect us back to the people. There's so many of them. The The pinnacle of this is Sheridan talking to his father. It's such a great moment to meet his dad. Mm. So cute. But we met him in Knives. That wasn't him. That was a different dad? He had a full head of hair, that dad. That w- Remember? He had a full head of hair. This one doesn't. He's, he's, he's uh, Ron Howard's dad, Rance Howard, and we all know those Howards. They're bolding guys. Uh, I but- meant more that that was a, a vision. vision. But you were happy to actually meet the man, the myth, the legend that is Sheridan's dad. Yes, Mr. Sheridan. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, yes, this makes sense. This makes sense and it feels earned and it feels appropriate. Even though we've never met this character before. Because we know him. We know about him. So the way that he approaches this conversation, being so calm about it, mm. and that little reminder that like he's a farmer now, but he used to be a diplomat. Mm. So again, reaffirming the logic of his approach. And he he knows what's going on. He's been watching too. He's not yeah. blind. I follow the news. Unlike your mother. Unlike you know how she is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then is that reminder of, like, yeah, not everybody is paying attention, even though it feels like it would be unavoidable to understand what's happening. Um, But Ryan also points out earlier that a lot of people are for martial law. Yeah, they don't understand the ramifications of it they just yeah. see the results of it being this positive yeah where it's cut crime down to zero yeah by the point of a gun but mm, to people they're just happy-go-lucky fools yep and it is such a important message that he leaves john with that he won't start a fight but he'll finish it mm-hmm. and that message from his dad being reaffirmed Mm. and and we will see sheridan use that a lot he uses it so much in the next little while Mm. like right up until they get back to earth yeah and it is just sweet that you have the walk and talk sequence where Sheridan's saying, I need this here, and I needed that 30 seconds ago, and he's being all the military man that we know him to be. He's in his element, being the guy who is going to fight the impossible odds and somehow win. And 
it is sweet that they have that. And he says, and I've got to make an important call. And you're going, oh, yeah, who's he going to contact? What what ace up his sleeve does he have for this one? Huh? What's he what's he going to do? And it's just his dad. Yep. It he reminds you that he just, is a man. Yep. He is a person. And it's the person that he trusts the most as well. Mm-hmm. It's not just... Uh, I miss my daddy. Mm. It's, I know my dad will have the right thing to say as well. In the script, his dad serves as this motivating factor for him to make that final decision to push the way they are going to do and to help him know that he's doing the right thing. But it evolves beyond that, not only because you've got Rance Howard being his dad, who, who was a great actor and he's great here. But again, it is... You're taking Sheridan aside from being the epic sci-fi lead character we know him to be because Sheridan is very much like that. He's the guy that is like, here, take my PPG and I'm going to take what I got. And he's the cowboy. He can be the cowboy like that. And Sheridan and and Bruce Boxline as Sheridan is very good at playing the sci-fi lead man who's all business and he knows what he's got to do. But every now and then he gets he lets his hair down and is and is a bit funny, like oranges and all that crap. But to take that away in the midst of an episode that would necessitate that side of his character to have him speak to his dad, to to confide into his father, to show us that he's a guy with insecurities and he's a guy that needs love and support And he can't show that to anybody on the station. Mm. He can't be vulnerable with them. In this manner. And with his dad. Because he he does show that little bit of release before he Mm. goes into this. Because he does show lots of vulnerability to Garibaldi and Ivanova and Franklin about how this is taking its toll on him, but it's a different type yes. than you can show when it's with your family. And I just thought that was really great addition that could have been absent from an There's episode like this. There's a lot like of this. moments like that where it's like, I'm so happy that this is here, even though it doesn't absolutely need to be here because it adds. The episode hinges on the line that Sheridan has, which is, yes, our humanity got us into it, but it's but our humanity that's going to get, get us out of it. And that is shown with these little scenes, like touching base with Corwin, or even that guy leaving the command deck, or Zack helping Garibaldi down. You have even Jakar helping Delenn and co. You have people supporting and being there for one another in all of these ways and these sullen looks at each other and everybody being aware of the magnitude of the situation but still having moments of pause just to be like, I'm a I'm a I'm I'm here. I'm alive and I've got worries and concerns. Sheridan has that scene where he lays it all out, the are we ready to fight scene. And yes, it is the epic war general type motivating the guys to do the thing, but the way that it is written and the way that Bruce delivers it makes it feel far different than that. And that is the strength of Severed Dreams is those moments of reminding us that these are people. If it was just us, hey, 
It pays you money, it takes you chances, but it's not just us. It's a quarter million people here and billions more out there counting on us. I promised the land that we would draw a line against the darkness no matter the cost. Well, now we know the cost. There's too much at stake to walk away now. If we surrender, they'll court-martial us. If we fight and lose, they'll probably kill us. They probably will at that. And just like that, They've broken away from Earth. Easy peasy, right? Oh, I'm sure that they'll be away from Earth for one episode and then they'll blow something up and then they'll be back to Earth immediately, yeah, right? Like, they'll reset it. You know, like they can't change the show. Unless it's like the end of the season, right? And it's like a cliffhanger for the next yeah. one, right? They're not going to do it like nine episodes in or ten no, episodes in, no, right? No, no, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Right? Clark will be disposed of. Yeah. Like, we won't even get much on his trial or whatever. No, they'll just shoot him and then it's over, right? And then everything's easy peasy and they don't even have to change uniforms or anything, right? No. Oh, okay, cool, cool. So that was uh, Severed Dreams. Excellent episode. Uh, 10 out of 10. But what if? What? What if the show is entirely different? From this point onwards, what, what, you're saying, what, are you proposing that it would actually follow through on the promises it's offering up? Yes. I can't handle that, Rachel. I've been whipped so much already. The prospects that the show would continue to whip is is just too much for my butt to handle. Yeah, we're being pers- hey hey hey. You're saying that now, but you know, you know that doing the podcast is like that smooth aloe vera mm. vitamin E salve on that whipped butt, and mm-hmm. you'll be ready for more oh, in yeah. about a week. In about a week, yeah, yeah. It takes a week to recuperate, and then it gets whipped again. I uh, we're being funny, of course, but I am used to, as are you, I think, with uh, with a lot of shows, not even just of this nature. Telling us that things are going to change. Telling us that here we are, we're going to do this big thing, this big epic thing. And a lot of them usually do it. We're gearing up to this, we're gearing up to this, we're gearing up to this. And here it is. And then it'll be gone fairly quickly and we reset to what we've been. I often also think that this is usually left for the season finale and then it leaves you hanging. Oh no, it's a huge moment to have in episode nine. Yeah, well, yeah, episode, episode 10. Not- episode, episode 8, 9, and 10. It's been like one big go. Yes. It's hard, it's hard to remember. Yeah. And and it's like, it's not episode 9 of 10. It's episode 10 and of 22. Mm-hmm. And of 22 of how many more we've got to go. Yeah, I was skeptical that they would actually, like, how far were they going to go? With this, because I how had much seen, can they do? With I had this? seen a lot of shows where they say that they're going to do a thing, and then they may do it for like a couple of episodes, and then they go back. It's kind of like Doctor Who was like that sometimes. They reset the board. Battlestar Galactica was like that even a bit as well, where it's like a Boltar's president. Ooh, what's that going to mean? And then you basically go back to being on the Battlestar and it's Rosalind as president and everything's kind of 
how it was. Oh, there's some ramifications to that time when he was in charge, but really, we never got, you know, what I'm talking about. Or when D- Deep Space Nine was taken over again by the founders and by uh, I, I was thinking Gold Ducat, and that was a period of episodes, and then they took yeah. it back, and then. And then it went back to and then normal. It, then it went back to but, basically what we knew it to be. In, but there were some differences, but they went back. It would have been bold if they never got to go back. Yes. This is this. We are not going to go back to being a part of Earth Alliance as we used to be. We're not going to be a part of the Earth normal Force thing. will never come back. And that... It, there is only a new normal that is to come. And we do not know how far away that new normal is or yeah, what that, that will watch. look like. Mm, mm, mm. And when you're revisiting the show as we are, it's still exhilarating and feels dangerous when a show does this because yeah. a lot of shows still don't actually no. do this because shows don't it's act... It's hard. It's lots, hard for one. Because you have to plan it out. You actually have to know where you're wanting to go with this. And even though we live in an age where there are these showrunners and creators that are like, oh, I've planned it out for 15 million years, and I, I often feel like we don't actually get to see the payoff to a lot of that uh, talk. A lot, a lot of them lose their way. A lot of them lose their way or they never had it. Game of Thrones is a great example of that where those final few seasons, those showrunners just Once completely went or, or even particular. or they or yeah, or other reasons for them like they wanted to do a Star Wars show instead. Or The Mandalorian's a great example of that too, where it's like they had clearly somewhere they were gonna go and then they've just kind of faffed about to be fans of Stranger or, Things. Too. Stranger Things a great one as well. Or I think about Star Trek Discovery there's always that one episode that I keep forgetting, but I wrote it down because I wanted to remember. There's an episode of the show in season two when it's with Pike and it ends with them being a ship that's now against Starfleet because it's been corrupted and they're like, we're going to be on the run. We're mutineers. We're, we're treasonous. We're going to have to fight our own people and they won't understand. Literally next episode, they're back to being Starfleet and there's no consequences. They literally just cliffhangered you with the idea that the show may change for then it not to change. Here, they're telling you it is going to be different. We are not going to be what we used to be. And it still is great when we're looking at it now. After all of these rewatches, after all of these years, because they follow through on that promise. We're up to everybody's favourite segment of the show, Spotlight. The part where we look at an actor or actress that appeared in the episode, we shine a spotlight upon them, and we talk about their performance in the episode, and any pieces of trivia or interesting information we've picked up on that person, as well as other roles that they've had or other projects they've been a part of. Today we're looking at... at Everett McGill. Oh, no, 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 not Everett McGill. Bruce what? McGill. Everett McGill wasn't in this episode. He could have been, but we're looking at Bruce McGill, who played Major Ed sure? Ryan. I am sure. I, I think I read this. I think I read it on IMDb that it was Bruce McGill. I, I got all this Bruce McGill trivia. Are you saying that was Everett McGill? I mean, they both have the name McGill. 
And that's enough. They're both the McGill guy. They're both the McGill guy. Okay, do you want to talk about that? So we're talking about Bruce McGill, who played yes, Ed Ryan. He's the actual one uh, that is here. Um, it was originally meant to, you know, be set. What the fuck is his name again? He's so useless, I've forgotten his name because he's there and then he's not there. Uh, General Haig? General Haig. <laughs> oh, yes. General Haig General was supposed to be this character. General Haig is meant to be here, but he's not because... because... the actor was on Deep Space Nine playing an admiral as well. Leading to the outtake of General Haig is doing Deep Space Nine. He was double booked by his agent. There was nothing to be done, so you have to do with me, sir. Mm-hmm. That's what Bruce McGill decided to say. But there's another reason that... Bruce McGill was not meant to be this person, which was that when they were having to like recast and slot somebody in to fill this purpose in this episode, um, JMS went to the casting person, I'll get the McGill guy, thinking of Everett McGill. Who's Big Ed from Twin Peaks and... We know that JMS is a big fan of that series. We've had a lot of actors and even a writer from Twin Peaks show up in Babylon 5 and work here before. So him saying that McGill guy makes sense to him. He couldn't remember his first name. Mm -hmm. He had met him at some event, I do believe. And he he wanted him here saying that McGill guy, but the casting person doesn't know which that McGill guy. So he got the other McGill guy who we have here, Bruce McGill, who... I like as an actor. I've always enjoyed him. He's one of those guys that turns up and you just know that there's going to be some solid, reliable work done. And that's how I would describe his performance. It's not the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Robust. He's equal footing with Ron Canada from first season as Captain Pierce. But his uniform fucking fits. (laughs) (laughs) Did you note that, Dom? uh, I did. That's we're why I beyond the up. days of uniforms not fitting. <laughs> uh, but but he is like Ron Canada Except to me. Except Zach, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Well, yeah. Well, I he's, have to point that out. But he's like Ron Canada to me, yeah. in which they're both very reliable actors. I wouldn't even say character actors necessarily, just working actors. And every time they show up, you know that it's going to be a well-defined job by them. Like They're going to define the character with something that's so specific to them and with Bruce McGill he he has done a large body of work but he 168 to, credits yeah, and but, counting but here he is just a very good I'm an officer I'm thoughtful about everything I'm doing you believe that the character has interiority because of his performance more so mm-hmm. than even the script which the script does allow him to have some but the way Bruce delivers lines Bruce McGill delivers lines is 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 very good at telling us more than the script is allowing us what did you think of him and how familiar are you with Bruce McGill I have seen him in more things than I realize that's Bruce that's Bruce McGill. Yep, that's him. I thought he was great in this. I thought his voice in particular was perfect mm. for this type of commander. That, mm. like, stern, deep voice that has that natural command to it. 
bite. That bravado to it. But he brings in this vulnerability as well. Mm. He is soft-spoken, yet he has he has that presence and that gravitas to it. But he's not booming like no, I'm just he, doing it, but he has a mix. He's not cocky, but he's confident. Oh, oh, I'll give him this. He's the guy that when the camera does the big zoom in on him and he tells them to fire, you fucking believe it. Yes. Because you need certain actors who can oh, really deliver those not lines. Not everybody can pull that off. And there's a lot of zooming the camera in on an actor, the infamous dolly zoom scene on Bruce Boxleitner when he's mulling over and having to have his come-to-realization moment of having to fight. And Bruce McGill has the big zooms in as well where he has to say those lines that you as an audience pumped for these CG assets to shoot at each Mm -hmm. other. That is really specific type of acting that I don't think we see a lot of as much anymore. I think Anson Mount is really good at that in yeah. Strange New Worlds. Like he's that guy that when the camera zooms in on him and he tells them to fire or to hit it, punch yes. it, all of that, you mm-hmm. you clench your fist, going "fuck yeah!" And Bruce McGill did that really well in this. As I, I just want to flag that up as that's, uh-huh. that's a small moment. That's just like mm-hmm. that is, could be insignificant to many people who watch this, yeah. but it means the world to me. I love it too. You ready for some facts? Yes. I'm I'm interested in hearing some facts about Bruce McGill. So one of the quotes and trivia that Mm. was on his page was an explanation of how he deals with rejection. I have that in my notes (laughs) because I really liked it. It's a long quote, but uh, it's a really good quote. two parts of it that I wanted to bring up. Because it's like, um, there's a direct quote from him and then a sort of explanation. Mm-hmm. I wanted to yeah, go over discuss this. those. Um, so, like, instead of... Um, the way that he frames, uh, like, actions... The way that he frames auditions, and particularly rejections, is that it's a reflection on their inability to see what's right in front of them rather than my inability to get a role. And the way that he sort of does that to himself is he talks to himself and he goes, wow, for that money they could have had Bruce McGill and they didn't take it? (laughs) And they didn't take me? I just think that's amazing. Well, too bad for them. (laughs) I like that a lot uh, uh, because Bruce McGill is an actor who does – Every type of work. I I noticed that I think in the 2000s, he took a break from TV for a while and focused a lot on movies, like bam, 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 movies. Eventually, he would get like an ongoing role in a TV show. But he is that type of guy where, oh, they've got Bruce McGill. Like, they, they have Bruce McGill money, where it's not saying, like, he's the most elite actor in the world. It's like, no, you go, well, Babylon 5 could get... list Yeah, you go, oh, Babylon 5 could get Bruce McGill. That makes sense. Yeah. You go, oh, yes, he he, he mm-hmm. exists in a certain bracket. Working actor. Working actor. So it's when they way. reject working actor Bruce McGill, it's like, wow, wow, they didn't even want to cop out for Bruce McGill money? Huh, lost for them. It's like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Do you know he did? Cop out that Bruce McGill money? Who, who, what? The Republican Party. 
Because he did narration to Donald Trump's election campaign. Yes, yes. So there is that information. <laughs> I have that too about Bruce. And I'm sure I'll play a clip of it just for amusement's sake of hearing Bruce McGill, a.k.a. Major Ed Ryan, pump out Trump. Donald Trump's America is secure. Terrorist and dangerous criminals kept out. The border secure. Our families safe. Change that makes America safe again. Donald Trump for president. Yeah, that's an unfortunate thing, isn't it? It doesn't negate his abilities no, as no, an actor, but no, it's not but something it's, that it's, endears it's, me to him as a it's person. It's there too. It's there it's too. It's there too. Working actor yeah. and proud Republican, uh, Bruce McGill. <laughs> yeah, you look at him and go, yeah, you're the type. You know what that is? That's one of those you facts. Like you belong with you, Bruce you, you know and what, Jerry. You, you know what it is? That's one of the... Yeah, that's a good point, too. <laughs> that's a good point, too. You look that's like you all the, belong to the same golf club. Or, or uh, they love... Uh, I mean, he loves sailing. I know I know Bruce McGill loves sailing. But, but, but you know what that is, that Trump fact? That's one of those where I pat myself on the back going, as an Australian, I have permission not to give a shit about that. Yes. That's not my politics, baby. We okay, have our own, you, by the way. You mentioned briefly that he loves sailing, which is listed on his trivia. Mm. Just the like, I think it's like those three words. He loves sailing because he wrote that. <laughs> he wrote that. He's like, I love sailing. They like How you did can't you put know? I. Did you know just from that, or did you? I think I just assumed just from that, and okay. I think maybe he's because been in some I... movies where he's been on boats. I fact checked that. Because I was just like, this is so weirdly specific with no details. Is he like a big sailor? He is. Um, I found him mentioning it in a couple of interviews, like just offhandedly. But the main one that I stopped and listened to was him talking about like the process of getting one of his bigger roles. Mm. I can't remember which movie it was. Um but it was one where he was already established enough, but he was keen to get this role. And he did a really tough sail. It was from Hawaii to, like, Florida or California. I can't remember mm. which. Um, but a big sail. But a big sail that's really difficult mm. and talking about his sea legs. And just the way that, like, he just used all of these terms. And I was like, okay, okay, that didn't come from nowhere. This man loves sailing. His IMDb trivia does not lie. I just want to say that Bruce McGill has been in everything. A fuck ton. Everything. 168 credits and counting. Everything. Two of those are in post-production currently. He he. I have a list of some of the big hitters. Obviously, he was in National Lampoon's Animal House, yes. which we didn't Stephen get, first was. We didn't get that. We didn't get their pairing up again and no, having adventures. But no, no. I would be, and uh, D Day. We didn't get I would be upset if they did mm-hmm. because they didn't do it for Lost in Space. That's fair. Uh, Lanier missed out hanging out with uh, with June Lockhart. So mm-hmm. I like how I called him Lanier, not Bill Mooney. Uh, he <laughs> was in My Cousin Vinny. He uh-huh. was in several episodes of MacGyver. Quantum yes. Leap is rather important. <gasps> Al he's the in, bartender. He's in two episodes of Quantum Leap. The first episode and, and the, the last, last episode. episode. As two separate characters. Yes. But the fact that his second character... Is basically God, is, maybe. Is, is probably God. Is... And, 
what does that mean if you haven't watched Quantum Leap? Yeah, exactly. The last episode of Quantum Leap is insane. It's excellent in my opinion, but it is very cerebral and very bizarre. And he is holding that episode together, Bruce McGill. He comes in can't imagine and anybody he has to play pulling that off. this esoteric, metaphorical character, and he does it really well. And Bruce McGill, over his career, he's played a lot of gruff guys, a lot of bartender. No, like, uh, uh, well, he's a bartender. I've he seen plays him play, a lot of politicians. And I've seen him play a lot of military too. figures, con men. I've seen him play bartenders or bikies. I've seen mm-hmm. him play a lot of rough and tumble guys. But in that Quantum Leap episode, he's so... Uh, yeah, he's godly. That's yeah. what he's coming across as. But there is just this uh, level of tenderness to him that I haven't seen on a lot of his performances. Because it is interesting to note down that he's done a lot of comedy work in his career. Yeah. And a lot of people may consider him a comedic actor. I've even seen him talk to talk about being a comedic actor. But because of the material I've seen him in, I don't think of him as a comedy guy. Like, he's not a comedy guy in Babylon 5. No. He's not a comedy guy in Star Trek. He's not a comedy guy in lots of things I've seen. Mm -hmm. And that's just because he has such a body of work that the points of entry that I've had into Bruce McGill's uh, long, long list of roles haven't been funny, funny ones. Like, he's been amusing in some of the stuff I've seen, but amusing, like... Oh, that was a fun line delivery. Like how he was amusing in this with him saying fire at the camera and everything. Yeah. Like he's in Black Sheep. That's yes. a comedy movie. He was he was good in that. Like Chris and, Farley, Black yes. Sheep, not the New Zealand. Not one. the New Zealand horror movie about the sheep that goes crazy. Yeah, but he's in many things. Collateral, Cinderella Man. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. I already See, said Animal House. I have Cliffhanger. He was even. I in. have seen him in a lot of comedies, and there's one in particular. Where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I forgot that that was him. Mm. Because it's a movie that, like, I I don't think about this a lot, <laughs> but it's a sequel that I'd, uh-huh. I'm like, it, 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 it's bad, but How could you it's say kind that? of fun in the way that it's bad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, of course I do. I saw, I have it in my list. I was, it was it leapt out at me because I went, oh, he's in that. I've, I don't think I've ever seen the sequel to Legally Blonde. Is that the one where she runs for president? No, no, she. Um, Is it that she's running something political, right? Yeah, she she goes to Washington. Okay, cool. Elle Woods goes to Washington, and he's one of the people on. Um, I think I can't remember. Is he an evil politician or an evil lawyer? Is he evil? No, he's a politician. Of course. And he is on the bad side. What? To whoa, 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 start whoa. with. Bruce McGill, with. voice for Donald Trump ads on the bad side of politics? To start no. with. But then he switches He switched sides. And he does he suppo- Biden uh, videos he suppo- now? He supports Bruce's bill. And I just He supports remember- whose bill? <laughs> Bruiser. Who's Bruiser? The dog. Oh, the dog. Because the whole thing is oh. that she wants to ban animal testing because she finds out that, like... They could test on a dog. No, she finds out that, like, a sibling... Of her dog. Of her dog has been is an animal testing and she goes on this whole crusade. See, see the movie can't be that bad. Rachel's laughing. everybody's mind because they have dogs too. <laughs> 
Is that in the musical? <laughs> no. They should have added that to the Legally Blonde oh. musical. I'll just tell oh, you that for it, a dollar. It, like, it just, like, how do, you, do you ever watch, uh, how do you pronounce it, Rizzoli and Isles? Uh, he was a, one no. of the main cast members of I, that. I looked I at it and it went uh, like 100 plus episodes. And that's mm-hmm. a show that I've maybe seen one episode of. I yeah. know it exists. Yeah, I have not seen him in that. But uh, he is one of those actors that he doesn't always just do one-offs. He'll take... Uh, like ongoing roles when mm. they're accepted, and he'll do film. Like he, yeah, he, he bounces t- around. Yeah. He has these periods where he does more films than TV, and then more TV than films. Like in this period of his career, he was doing a bunch of TV spots, just yeah. one and done TV spots. And then in the two thousands, for like a good stretch, he was mainly doing movies. And then, like I said, Rizzoli and Isles, he was in that for a while, and was I, mainly doing like TV spots while doing I that. I want to touch on one that I haven't seen, but. Looks batshit in a really fun way. Yeah. Do you, you looked through? Did you see the movie Poms? Well, Poms is a very infamous movie. Yes, that came out a few years back. That mm-hmm. got a lot of scorn. Yep. From was it Angelica Houston? There was a scorn for, uh, I think it was Angelica Houston was making fun of the movie about how there's uh, these old ladies that are cheerleaders. A retirement village Yes, makes a cheer squad yeah. and Diane Keaton is the lead. And Jackie Weaver's in it. And a famous Australian actress who I've met, Jackie Weaver. Oh, you know what? Can I t- tell my Jackie Weaver story on the pod? I don't think I've ever told my Jackie Weaver story no, on the pod. No, you told your Ruby Rose story, so tell your Jackie Weaver story. Okay, I want to tell my Jackie Weaver story. My Jackie Weaver story is, well, she's a well-regarded actress uh, here in Australia, and then she went on to be a bigger deal over in America when she got Oscar-nominated for the film Animal Kingdom, and then she's gone on to do many Hollywood movies, and good for her. But here she was always just, always oh, Jackie Weaver. And the year I met her was when she was Oscar-nominated for Animal Kingdom. So she was big deal. Before and- the Oscars had happened... Mm-hmm. Uh, but after she'd been nominated. So like, she was hot the shit. Prime the prime situation. spot to meet Jackie Weaver. Like, could, like, like this was a big win. deal. She didn't win, but it was a big deal. And I was waiting in uh, uh, backstage to see Barry Humphreys. That was a show that I saw, and she obviously saw it as well. And she gave me this look, and I gave her a look back. And then my parents were like, Ryan, that, that's Jackie Weaver. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know it's Jackie Weaver. Oh, yeah, hi, Jackie Weaver. And then I just went back to waiting. Yeah. I had no interest in talking no. to Oscar-nominated actress Jackie Weaver, because <laughs> what did I have to say to her? I hadn't seen Animal Kingdom. <laughs> and I'd rather talk to Ben Mendelsohn. I love him more in yeah. that film and as an actor. But that's my Jackie Weaver story. But yeah, Poms has him in it, yes. Jackie Weaver. And what I remembered was there was controversy about... I think it was Angelica Houston. I, I I hope it was, or else I'm slagging her off. But some other well-regarded older actress making fun of the fact that these actresses are embarrassing themselves in this Poms movie. And then nobody saw Poms. Nobody saw Poms. <laughs> nobody saw it. Nobody talks about it. I was disappointed because I've always admired Angelica. And, and I said, and I just laughed. And then I thought, well, she can go fuck herself. Yeah. What do we rate this episode. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Oh, just just shoot me 
down before I could even finish the sentence. I was gonna say. Yum yum. Yum yum. Do I get? Yum yum. Yum yum. Do you want to? Yum yum. Yum yum. Oh, all right. Yum yum. I'm not even gonna rate it. You've already said it 14 times, and apparently, out of the two, out of the two of us, who doesn't like yum yum more? It used to be you, but you love it more now. You can't stop saying it. I love this episode. Oh no, Brian. On our impervious scale of yum being bad and yum yum being good, how do you rate this episode? When during our podcast journey did we decide that it was the word to describe our scale was impervious? <laughs> I think about that a lot. I like know, at some point, stuck. at some point, we decided that it's impervious, and it is. I, I, I mean, it is impervious. It's yum being bad, yum yum being good. No half yums. We're not. We're no. not middling. We're not skipping ratings. I give this a yum yum. Yum yum. Well, next week, we'll be watching... On the next Babylon 5. Episode 11, Ceremonies of Light and Dark. The DVD would like to describe the episode like as such. or does? Well, well, let me ask. Hey, hey, DVD description. Do, I mean, do, do you want to give me the description? Do you want to tell me what it is? like to do that, Ryan. I would like to do that very much. Well, thank you. I would you. like you to also know that Seven Dreams is a yum yum for me, too. Yum yum. Remnants of Nightwatch remain on the station and they're plotting oh, no. to take control. As oh, part of their plan, they kidnap Delenn and two associates, setting a perilous hostage crisis in motion. It's in motion. Look at it roll down the hill. It's in motion. <laughs> Rachel looks so bothered by that. Of all the goofy stuff we've said in this, that's what bothers you, huh? Well, you're bothered so much that you can take us out. Take us out, Rachel. Here's the keys to the yum yum car, which, yes, it's bright yellow. Because for some reason, I think a bright yellow is a yum yum color. Yeah, but the red stripe is what makes it. Well, is it a... Yeah, I was going to say a pink stripe, because pink's also like a yummy colour. Like that, no, no, that, we have that... the pink licence plate. Oh, thank you. That says yum, yum. In what colour, though? That I mean, what does the like the lettering say? The licence plate is a bright pink, a bright well, we, vaginal we, pink. We could only get pink on white. So. Oh, okay. Okay, fair enough. It was either pink lettering on a white license plate or oh. pink with white letters. I dare somebody to Photoshop us the Yum Yum Mobile and show it to us on our social medias. That's a challenge for you yumlings out there. But, Rachel, where can people find us to send us such things or if they just want to follow us around on the internet? If you want to directly send that to us... Yumyumpod at gmail.com is the place to do so. If you want to follow us and see if somebody else has provided us with that image and we are sharing it with the masses on all of those social medias, you can find us at Yumyumpod or Yumyumpodcast. Mm-hmm. All of that is in the description of the episode, as well as a link to our 
Patreon, in which you can pay to support the show, and if you do, you get a load of extra content, as well as being a part of our group Discord, where you can interact with us and other yumlings in real time, unlike fake time. Am I right, guys? No one likes fake time at all. But we are doing uh, a special uh, show on there, where we talk about space above and beyond episode by episode, like we do here. So if you want to come over there and hear our thoughts on episodes like Ray Butts, for instance, of Space Above and Beyond, you can. And it's a different in a way where we are going through it for the first time. Well, Rachel is anyway. Thank so if you, you haven't clarifying. seen Space Above and Beyond before, or you've There's been no meaning to give it there a for you. If you've been meaning to give it a watch along or you want to hear people talk about it in a capacity where we're looking at it through fresh eyes or someone like me where I can chip in by going, oh, look, I know these things without spoiling, come on over to the Patreon. If you haven't rated and reviewed us on your podcatcher of choice that you're listening to this on, how dare you? How dare you? I've taken your address down in my book and I'm calling the authorities and it's going to be Bruce McGill that drives up to your house dressed as a cop. He's probably played a cop before. I imagine he has. And he's going to knock on your door and say in his in his sexy voice, how dare you? How dare you not rate Yum Yum Podcast on Apple or Spotify or Podchaser or Podcast Addict or Audible or any of those in the highest of ratings? How dare you? And then he smacks you in the face. And then he walks away. And he also points at you and goes, Jakar was in that episode, Severed Dreams, that I was in. I didn't have a scene with him, but I saw Andreas on the set, and he walked past me and said, Good eating to you, Bruce. And I didn't know what he was talking about. But I do. Me, personally, Ryan, I understand what Andreas was saying. He was saying, Good eating to you. Good eating to you, Rachel. Good evening to you, Ryan. <laughs>